Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love. Sex and Relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. Today, we're diving into our archives to bring you an episode that is very close to my heart. I've explored many healing modalities, from traditional talk therapy to moving meditation practices, from the woo-woo to the most high-tech. I've traveled to the other side of the world, spoken to priests and sorcerers and shamans and doctors and philosophers and homeopaths and Ayurvedic doctors, and the list goes on. Some of these encounters have been potent and life-altering, while others have made for good stories. When I look back at my healing journey, some of the most impactful experiences have been with psychedelics, which are having a welcome renaissance right now. In this episode from 2021, we're joined by Didi Goldbaugh, who, in my eyes, is the most lucid voice when it comes to psychedelic therapy. Didi is a psychotherapist and a clinical supervisor in private practice specializing in sex and relationship therapy, trauma, spirituality, and psychedelic integration psychotherapy. They're also a member of the Woodstock Therapy Center Ketamine-Assisted Psychotherapy Team. Didi has written and presented widely on the topic of psychedelics and spirituality, Queer Identity, Trauma, Spiritual Practice, and Pleasure, and have just published an article in Psychedelics and Sexuality in the Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy and the Queering Psychedelics book. Didi is the Community Support and Integration Director at the Hudson Valley Psychedelic Society and has clinical training background in sex therapy, EMDR, internal family systems therapy, and psychodynamic psychotherapy. They're an artist and musician and have additional training in schematic healing and bioregional herbal medicine. Their approach to psychotherapy embraces body and sex positivity and spiritual growth as a tool for self-actualization. Psychedelics have historically been associated with party kits and hippies. And most recently, the perception of them swung hard the other way and hit the mainstream, with Gwyneth Paltrow talking about psilocybin on goop and ayahuasca ceremonies becoming a casual topic of dinner conversation. So we were curious, how did this happen? Let's not forget that these medicines are nothing new for the most part. You know, the history of psychedelics go back centuries in indigenous use. But what we commonly think of psychedelics is more in the camp of LSD, which is a synthetic substance that was um, synthesized first in the 1940s. So throughout the 50s and 60s, you have this emergence of psychedelic research. And they were looking at substances like peyote, LSD, to treat mental health disorders, depression, alcoholism, there's actually quite a lot of robust study happening. Then psychedelics sort of enter into um, the counterculture in America, right? And and you have the blueprint that we think of, which is what Epi was referencing, like the hippie hippie culture, party kid culture. And, you know, psychedelics get folded into this idea of kind of peace and love and free love, counterculture, all of that stuff. 
So it's that that really sends psychedelic research, which had been on a promising trajectory in the 50s and 60s, crashing to a halt. The Controlled Substances Act gets signed into law by Nixon, and this really just brings all of the scientific research screeching to, you know, a conclusion. So it's not really until the 1990s that very slowly, timidly, and cautiously, um, scientists begin to, again, look at psychedelics for mental health purposes. So now we're in what many people consider to sort of be a renaissance of that kind of research. And the pendulum has really swung the other way. Um, Psychedelics now have, not only do you see them on, you know, goop episodes or whatever, but the idea that they are really in service to making us more functional and productive people uh, is very much part of the clinical research. Like the um, federal government just approved funding for the first ever study uh, that's has federal funding. So I should back up and say there's been robust study of psychedelics that has happened in the past 15 or so years. It's all been privately funded. The U.S. government has stayed far away from funding any kind of research into psychedelics. But uh, the first ever government-funded study is getting off the ground, and that's looking at psilocybin mushrooms for smoking cessation. So we see that it's come very far from the uh, world of counterculture to the world of these things can be used in these intensely practical ways in order to help people with things like quitting smoking. So, you know, we've seen a real arc from party to um, very practical health focused types of applications for psychedelics. And what I hope to do in my work is find some middle ground in that. Has there been research that's happened in other countries? Like it is, are we further along in the United States or is this something that you've seen kind of across the globe where there has been this up and down of interest and research and understanding around the power and use of psychedelics? Well, I mean, the U.S. has been the focus of most of the research, although there is also very strong research that's coming out of um, particularly Imperial College in England. So, mm. I mean, that's another research center that's been contributing massive amounts of useful information to the field. But I think we also want to be really careful to not be only rooted in a Western white medical paradigm, because of course, in indigenous contexts, psychedelics Mm -hmm. have had continued use, right? So in countries like Ecuador and Peru, where there are shamans who have been part of shamanic lineage practice, where uh, that goes back in generations of family, have worked with psychedelics for healing their own communities in an undisturbed way, you know, for in some cases, centuries in Mexico, same thing. So, I mean, yeah, whereas there has been this kind of reemergence in a Western white medical context, uh, mm. indigenous people have held the wisdom of these medicines in an un- uninterrupted way for hundreds of years. Oh, yes. I appreciate you naming that and saying that. That makes sense. Yeah, it's important, right? Yeah. So for those of us who only know psychedelics as as a party drug, can you give us a little bit, just like a bit of a one-on-one, like what are psychedelics? How do they work in the body and why do they have healing potential? Well, you know, it seems like what are psychedelics is a pretty one-on-one question, but actually it's a, it's a fairly complicated question because what we're talking about when we say psychedelics is actually a wide range of different 
substances that have now been placed under that umbrella, which may or may not be thought of as what we used to think of as psychedelics at all. So our most basic building block of the question, right? Are psychedelics or plants, fungi, or chemicals that we take that alter our conscious consciousness in some significant way that, you know, can be used for personal enrichment, for spiritual exploration, for, for their healing potential. The category that we think of as the classic psychedelics, those are the ones that are like LSD or psilocybin mushrooms, and they basically induce a um, state in the user. That's what we think of as tripping, right? They have a kind of visual distortions or seeing beautiful colors or having kind of profound inner insights, and that's what we think of as the classic psychedelics. Now, there's some very important substances that have now gotten grouped in with psychedelics that don't really act in that way at all. Um, One being MDMA, which is kind of now under the psychedelic umbrella, but, you know, MDMA is more of, it's a synthetic chemical that creates a neurohormonal response in the body and allows for incredibly deep feeling states, allows for us to access and reprocess trauma. And I could talk more about how that looks and also allows for a feeling of um, connection and love. Then there's ketamine, and ketamine is not in any way a psychedelic. It's a dissociative anesthetic that has always been prescribable, legal to be prescribed by a a licensed physician. And ketamine, at a certain dose, induces a psychedelic-like experience and at the same time causes changes in the brain that can significantly reduce depression in users in a clinical context. So, you know, we have all these things that we think of as being under the umbrella of psychedelics that are not quite psychedelic at all. The answer to what they do in the body is just as varied, right? So if I were to speak in broad strokes, psychedelics bind to certain receptors in the brain causing us to have a distortion in our usual experience of our thoughts and feelings that can have profoundly positive impacts on our day-to-day lived experience when coupled with either supportive psychotherapy or coaching or personal work that helps us to make sense of the material and feelings that we experienced in that altered state. I don't think I've ever heard such a succinct definition. (laughs) No, really though, I think that that I think I need to sit with that because not only did that feel incredibly clear, it felt important. And I think also legitimate, right? Because we don't have it ever spoken in that way. So now you're like, oh, okay, can this, what we're talking about can sit next to, you know, any other medicine that we talk about in a legitimate kind of way. Yes, because these are medicines. These are legitimate medicines in every, in every respect. There is a lot of research out there. If, if your listeners have interest in the specific neurochemical actions, there's a lot of research out there about what each different psychedelic does and how it does it. But that would be the whole podcast if we got into you know the specifics of that. So I'm giving you some of the broad strokes. No, I mean, we often we speak to guests and we're like, you have to come back and tell us more about that thing. So uh, <laughs> we, might, we might at some point be like, he, did he come back and explain to us like one, you know, one psychedelic at a time? So that's that's super interesting. I think something that you said earlier that stuck with me, actually, which is like the first thing that they've allowed psilocybin is for to giving up smoking. Isn't that is that what you said? Yes which I find fascinating of all the things that that's like the thing that managed to make it through all the, the paperwork, which, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to me. 
What I'm really interested in is I, I know that uh, psychedelics have been used in healing trauma for a long time. It's, they've, they've been really effective in, in healing trauma. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about why specifically trauma and how, uh, why psychedelics are effective treating trauma? Well, you know, the answer to why psychedelics might help people quit smoking and why they treat trauma are not that far from each other. With a, a psychedelic like psilocybin, if we think about psilocybin mushrooms, which for many people is their first entry point into psychedelics, right? Like tripping in college on mushrooms or whatever. You know, we, we know that within American culture, these, these substances are, are often used recreationally. And there is tremendous healing potential because at certain doses, in certain specific kinds of contexts, a substance like psilocybin mushrooms can induce what we call a mystical experience. And so the mystical experience gives us a sense of wonder, of connection to something greater, ineffability. And there's something about having that kind of immediate felt experience so outside of our normal consciousness that helps people with things that range from saying, I no longer want to damage my health by smoking cigarettes. I've had this connection to something that's so much greater than myself. And that allows me to stop this habitual behavior that's harmful to my body. And that spectrum extends all the way to healing trauma. We can think of it in various ways. So the trauma healing aspects of psychedelics, and I can speak a little bit about my own work specifically. So I am a psychedelic integration therapist, and I also do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which outside of research context is the only kind of legal therapy that's psychedelic-like that a client can have at this time. Specifically, the population I work with are people who, who have trauma, who have had previous psychedelic experiences, and they're trying to use that experience with psychedelics to play some role in their healing experience, their experience of healing trauma. So particularly sexual trauma. A client might have the mystical experience, as I've mentioned. Um, another thing that psychedelics can do, uh, MDMA is quite notable for this type of experience, is bring the user into a capacity to see and experience their previous trauma while not being in the triggered or activated state that the memory of the trauma evokes. So an MDMA session, um, and this is being studied very widely for the treatment of trauma, there's phase three studies right now, or actually phase three has been wrapped up by MAPS, that's the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and um, they're into the expanded access phase. So we're looking at MDMA being rescheduled in the next couple of years to um, be a prescribable medication for treating trauma. And the way it works is that there's this cascade of normal neural hormonal um, responses in the body that allow the person taking it to have these kind of feelings of well-being, feelings of connection and love. And with a therapist's guidance and with proper preparation, a person can then confront previous trauma, let's say childhood sexual abuse, and be able to look at that and reprocess it from a safe distance. So the body is not getting into this activated and triggered state that would be common of a person um, being flooded by traumatic memories, not in a psychedelic state. So that is one way that trauma and psychedelics work together very well. An aspect that gets really less talked about and something I'm very interested in in my writing and in my work with clients 
is actually just embodied feelings of pleasure and joy. You know, research does not do a very good job looking at how we heal through feeling good. There's a lot of emphasis on confronting trauma. There's a lot of emphasis on uh, how our symptoms uh, rate from the beginning to the end of looking at, you know, trauma therapy. And what they don't do a very good job at is emphasizing that we can heal just by getting back in touch with a feeling of pleasure and joy. My own story of trauma healing, uh, I did not experience psychedelics in the context of a research study. I went to Peru several times looking to heal PTSD that I experienced from childhood abuse. And my experience was not being thrust into memories of my trauma. It was actually being in this beautiful environment and feeling completely without any of the burden of trauma in my body, right? It was being able to feel my whole body for the first time, being able to kind of have this embodied sense of joy and um, connection. And those things, joy, connection, embodiment, they wither when we're in a traumatized state. So, you know, I just think that there's many, many paths to healing trauma that are offered to us with psychedelic medicine. And of course, you know, in clinical contexts, they're focused on getting very specific outcomes so that these substances can have credibility and get rescheduled and be legally accessible to more folks. And I think they have often stayed away from some of the most deeply healing parts of psychedelics, which are the pleasure, joy, eroticism, embodiment. Wow. Yeah, that piece, I, I, you know, as, as Jackie would say, I have to sit with that. You're right. Like anytime we talk about trauma, uh, we are looking at how to get through it, how to talk about it, how to process it. And it's very trauma focused rather than what I'm hearing you say is, well, OK, let's do that. And let's also imagine what it feels like not to have trauma and, and somehow get our nervous system through psychedelics or, or any other methods to go just to remind our system that this is what it feels like not to have trauma. This is what it feels like not to be activated and sort of almost create new memories of feeling feeling well and joyful. Is that is that that's kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that has been my experience and that as a modality doesn't really get explored very much in the clinical psychedelic world. I'm interested. So Effie and I have different journeys and experience with substances of all kinds. Um, I think for, for the majority of my life, stayed away, grew up in a really religious environment and my vices were more about food and sex and less about things like drugs and alcohol. And it, mm-hmm. so experienced it minimally as a young adult, but really now into my, my thirties and forties have thought much more deliberately and intentionally about how to utilize substances to mm-hmm. help connect me to my body because my particular childhood experiences resulted in a real disconnect and me just mm-hmm. wanting to live in my brain at all times. Mm-hmm. And then once doing the work with within therapy to try to connect with my body and then feeling all those things and then be like, no, get out of there. <laughs> like first I was not connected. Then when I was connected, I was like, what is happening in here? No, why am I crying all the time? This is terrible. Who wants to be in their body? And, <laughs> and so then have, have been able to utilize particularly smoking weed, I've done microdosing and some other experiences to say, okay, I can now experience my body and almost kind of go and step around all, all that's happening in my mind, like quiet that noise to experience my, my physical body in a different way. And I feel like I only cracked the door and like seen a little 
little bit of what's possible. And I feel mm-hmm. like incredibly drawn to wanting to see more of the power of that. Mm-hmm. And so th- I'm kind of approaching this from that space of really brand new, wanting to experiencing it, wanting to understand how to do that in a way that, that feels um, healthy and safe and, and accessible and interested Effie in your experience, because I know on the opposite end, you have, you've had opportunities to be able to connect and, and, and explore and do all these other things. And so I'm wondering what your experience and, and thoughts around psychedelics are. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I like you said, I did the 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 party kid version of it for uh, for a long time, and then I stopped, and you know, was a sensible adult for a, a hot minute, <laughs> barely an eye, barely a, a wink of an eye, and then I went back to exploring because after years and years and years and years of talk therapy, I felt like I hit a wall that that I just felt like I was using the thing that gets in the way to try to get through to the other side. So I was like, okay, I can't do any more talk therapy. There isn't anything else to to, to explore, talking about it. And it actually is just now at a point that's reinforcing the thing that gets me stuck anyway. So I was like, what are my options, right? And that's when I learned about embodiment and like body memory and how trauma is kept in the body and all that kind of stuff and and realize the things that I can't get to or things that just get reinforced by me talking about it, I need to get into my body and, and find those things the way they sit in my body and kind of expel them from and process and expel them in that way. And that's kind of where I was like, like that, that's where I was seeking with psychedelics. And I feel like the things that Didi said, like an MDMA experience is very different than a psilocybin experience, which is very different than a ketamine experience. And I've done pretty much all of them almost clinical in, in almost in clinical situations, like with somebody who knows what they're doing, medicinal use, and they've all had different experiences. So yeah, I think, you know, exactly what Didi's saying, it kind of just like connects you into your body and puts you in the driver's seat that you're like, you're in your body and you're in the driver's seat rather than the way that I experience it, which is like, that I'm like, I'm a, I'm a little person in my brain that's like driving my body <laughs> with, the, with like little levers um and i find actually two things i feel like psychedelics and dance like dance therapy have been like the two things that mm. allow me to get into my body ideally in combination by the way mm-hmm. that allow me to get into my body and uh, help me like process things can you talk through then Didi, the, the distinction between kind of having an experience of psychedelics like you described maybe going to Peru or Mexico and doing that on your own versus it happening within a therapeutic experience like what does psychedelics assisted therapy look like? Well, I'm going to build off um, something Effie said to sort of bring us into the answer to this question. So yeah, you are, Effie, the driver, the pilot, I can't remember what languaging you used of your body, but you have a very good (laughs) co-pilot. So what I'm interested in in my research is also looking at um, another aspect that gets sort of left out of the therapeutic paradigm, and that is the role of the sacred in psychedelic healing. I want to be very clear before I go into this. I am a white person. I am not a, an indigenous person. I don't speak for indigenous people and indigenous practices around psychedelics are not one monolithic thing, right? So I'm speaking from an academic perspective and also someone that has benefited greatly from receiving healing from genuine shamanic practitioners who are indigenous people. So, you know, before I go on, I want to just like give that caveat. The shamanic approach to psychedelic healing is that the plant has its own sentience and its own spirit, and that spirit joins with you so that it it is there as a guide and ally in your healing process. 
So yeah, you are the pilot and you have this plant spirit or plant ally that is with you, guiding you through that process and offering you healing. And that's a pretty profound thought. Now, Jacqueline, to get more into your question about how is that different from the clinical context. So clinical contexts, by and large, are using synthetic versions of any kind of psychedelic. So you think of psilocybin as being a mushroom, right? A, a substance that grows out of the ground. But psilocybin mushrooms are actually extremely varied in terms of how much psilocybin they have, strain to strain, what types of effects that they have. So in a research study, what a person is getting is a very precise dose of the synthetic psilocybin. And generally what they're receiving is preparation for the experience and then non-directive psychotherapeutic support, generally with two therapists that stay with them and in a supportive capacity during the psychedelic experience. So when you encounter psychedelic healing, say in a more indigenous context with a shamanic practitioner or a neo-shamanic practitioner, there is this idea that the spirit of the medicine is involved in your healing process and that the shamanic practitioner is in some way um, offering through their singing or through their healing practices, channeling that spirit so that it can enter your body and join with the shaman in doing healing work. Now, this is obviously very, very different than what we think of in the clinical world, which is that the experience of the substance itself is creating these effects, right? Certain substances like ketamine, for example, have a, a, an observable antidepressive effect in the brain. That's just true. MDMA, as we were saying, has this experience of being able to create this cascade of different effects in the body that allow for us to get more in touch with difficult materials. Like that's chemically observably true. So there's this idea of the medicine doing the heavy lifting combined with the therapy in the clinical world. Whereas in the shamanic world, it's more of this kind of relationship between the spirit of the plant, um, the shamanic facilitator and the person that's receiving the healing. So what I've heard you say is, uh, you know, in the shamanic, in the the original kind of application of medicine work, this kind of psychedelic medicine work, that the shamanic experience has the spiritual, very spiritual, sacred aspect to it. And that gets folded in and it's a part of the experience, a part of the healer, it's your co-pilot that t- takes you towards healing. And then, of course, because we can't quantify that, um, we have, you know, we do this like clinical version of that. And so we sort of synthesize these these otherwise sacred plants and use that. Do we know that if there's a difference in that? Like, do we know that if it's, if it works differently, like, is are there any research in like seeing whether that has a, a, a directly different impact on the person who's using them? It's a hard question to answer, right? Because all of the research that we have that's clinical is, um, has intensely rigorous protocols uh, that are often looking to answer very specific questions like a reduction in symptoms or a remission of a certain kind of diagnosis. Now, what we can do more through the anthropological research is look at the impact of communities that have, for example, used ayahuasca for an entire lifetime. We do have research more through the anthropological rather than the psychological of what do communities look like when they have um, a ritual, sacred ritual around plant medicine healing, and people may start using these medicines at a young age and use them into old age. And what we know about those communities is they tend to have intense well-being. They tend to have very low rates of alcoholism or substance use. They tend to be quite harmonious. People um, tend to 
have a high degree of psychological well-being and harmony in their lives. So, you know, we do have some sense of what it might look like if psychedelics were integrated into community. And we have a sense of what psychedelics look like in a clinical context. And there's a lot to fill in in the, in the spectrum in between. My work is really transpersonal in a lot of ways. I'm very interested in talking about spirituality with clients. I'm very interested in bringing their own unique spirituality in as an, a tool into their healing practice. And there's other, you know, very strong voices in the psychedelic science world that think spirituality has no role whatsoever in psychedelic healing. But psychedelic science is science and spirituality and science don't meet. That's not my view, but there's, there's an awful lot that will emerge here. And I think the missing piece, maybe Effie getting more to the heart of your question is what would a decriminalized world look like? So another strong movement that's happening right now is drug decriminalization. And the substances that are sitting at the forefront of that movement are psychedelics, simply because many people are coming around to the fact that psychedelics are not addictive, largely safe when used responsibly by most people. And, you know, the idea that anybody should be criminal criminalized for the use of these medicines is kind of absurd, right? So uh, there's been many, not many, but several cities in the United States that have now decriminalized psychedelics. And it begs the question of like, what might it look like if we have something that sits between the shamanic and the clinical? What could it look like instead of psychedelics being relegated into a world of partying, which I'm not even saying I necessarily oppose, but if we had community-based spaces with peer leadership where you could go and say, have a psilocybin experience with a trained person that could be there to support you that might reflect the norms of your community. Like this, I think is particularly important for communities of color in the United States for queer people um, that are really, really underrepresented and have been traumatized and are not well understood in clinical contexts because most of the people who have designed these protocols are white men for the most part, right? So I have this vision of this space that could exist in between where a trained facilitator might be able to work with people of your own community in a legal capacity that are not being treated necessarily for a mental illness, but are saying, looking for, um, you know, to do spiritual work on themselves or looking to have something that's just a support and understanding themselves more deeply. Like I think creating legal access to that type of experience is it's not going to happen anytime very soon, but I hope I live to see that future. So research studies are very, very difficult to get into. They're looking for people with very specific kinds of symptoms and expression of mental illness or physical illnesses. And that's because they're studying things in a very, very narrow lens. And, um, you know, my understanding is when MAPS was enrolling people into their phase three study, they had a waiting list of people in the tens of thousands that wanted to get into it for hundreds of spots it's just not realistic. People do get into research studies. I'm not saying that they don't like somebody is being researched, but it's like, you know, a drop of water in an ocean of trying to get one of those slots. If you're a person that's just experiencing distress. So this leaves people in a predicament, right? Because everybody is not cut out to go into a shamanic context. That's just not appropriate for all people. And the idea of leaving the country and where do you start with that? Like, where do you find a reliable shaman in Peru? Right? I'm not saying that it can't be done. I, I, I have done it. Right. 
and at the same time, one needs a lot of privilege to be able to, to undergo something like that. Financial privilege, physical ability, you know, contexts like that are not always comfortable for queer gender nonconforming folks. There's a lot of different issues that get packaged around. And not only that, but there's a lot to be said about being a white person and just waltzing into somebody else's culture and being like, here I am, heal me. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think we need yeah. an intense amount of scrutiny around are we is that exploitation? Can we do that in a way that's respectful of other people's cultures and traditions? Are indigenous people being supported in those communities? Like are the communities receiving direct support when we show up and ask for their healing? So there's a lot of questions around that. And what it leaves people with is either self-administering psychedelics or seeking out underground facilitators. Now, I have met people who do underground work who are some of the most caring, well-trained, experienced facilitators out there. I am not in any way putting down people that are literally risking their freedom to offer this work to people. And at the same time, we see the intense drawbacks to a criminalized underground with psychedelic healing, because right now the psychedelic community is in a massive moment of reckoning around sexual abuse that was perpetrated by facilitators. And like, we cannot ignore that when someone has an intense amount of power over you and you're in an altered state and there's no real substantial system of accountability that exists if you're harmed, that that is a very vulnerable position to be in. Now, I want to make clear, like, the vast majority of people who do this work, that is not going to happen to them. But it has happened. And it's it's when you are already traumatized and to think of being further violated in such a vulnerable state, it's unthinkable, unthinkable to me. So, you know, I think that the closer we get to decriminalization and the closer we get to a broadening of clinical services around psychedelics, the safer these substances will be, not only safe to the physical body and and psychologically safe, but also um, greater systems of accountability around the person actually being safe while they're taking the substances. First of all, I can't even imagine the damage it can cause to somebody who's trying to heal from trauma to be further violated and traumatized on on that journey. So that's huge. I'm curious to what if people are, if our, you know, if our listeners are, are kind of have taken this on and, you know, and they're looking for someone to heal them and what are some of the things they need to watch out for? What are some of the due diligence do you suggest they, they do? Um, how can they protect themselves? How can they ensure that they connect with somebody who truly wants to, to, to help and to heal? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's very complicated. In my clinical work, I don't make any kind of referrals whatsoever for people to do underground work because I think it becomes incredibly complicated between therapist and client. I I strictly work with people in an integration capacity or in a legal capacity. So, I mean, these are great questions, Effie. And, you know, unfortunately there's no easy answers, but if a person, if a client came to me and they said, for example, I would like to do an ayahuasca ceremony, I'm going to be curious about that. What What do you want from that experience? How could you access it? Like, what, in what ways are you considering trying to access a uh, an experience like this? So, one thing that a person can do is ask a lot of questions about the person that might be facilitating this. How are they trained? What kind of background do they have? Do they have psychological training? Do they have shamanic training? What exactly is the context going to be like? Are there going to be other people there? Often 
going with a friend and having somebody else present that is, you know, not just you and the facilitator. For some people, that gives an additional sense of, of safety. Uh, for traumatized women, often they might opt for going to contexts that are uh, female-led or female-only. So, you know, that can be a safer context for some people. And I think we want to just continue to remind ourselves that as long as these things are illegal, um, we're taking a risk about the quality of the substance we're receiving. We're taking a risk uh, legally about engaging in something that is potentially um, a risk to ourselves or to the person that's facilitating the ceremony. You know, it's a, it's a difficult question to, to answer. But again, I would really be thinking about... Um, do I get the feeling from this person that they're transparent with me, that they're asking for a fair energy exchange in terms of the financial commitment that they're asking for? Is the relationship clear of any kind of conflicts of interest? Like if somebody is asking you for, for example, like a work exchange or trying to have a co-occurring sexual relationship with you, those might all be um, really red flags that this might not be a person that you want to work with. How can folks engage in some advocacy around this? Because what I hear is there's incredible potential and power for the use of psychedelics within a healing experience, within a spiritual experience, and access to those things are incredibly limited. Mm -hmm. And so how can the lay person be engaged in helping to change some laws and policies around access and accessibility? Well, the decriminalization movement is quite organized in many places around the country. Also, psychedelic societies are popping up all around. Um, so I am the community support and integration director at the Hudson Valley Psychedelic Society near where I live in Woodstock. Basically, what we do, you know, we have very hard lines about we don't refer people to underground practitioners. We don't do anything that's outside of legal limits. But we see ourselves mostly as a social justice organization that steps in and tries to organize around contacting local politicians, um, drafting resolutions that can be looked at on, on local and state levels uh, to change laws around accessibility to psychedelics. You know, Oregon is, a, is an interesting example because they also, in addition to their decriminalization movement, have a psychedelic therapy bill where they're actually carving out a legal avenue for people to receive psilocybin therapy um, with trained facilitators. That's going to be in addition to decriminalization. So there's like really interesting and creative things that are happening in more progressive spaces. But yeah, I mean, getting involved on a local level is probably the best thing you can do because I don't see a world where we have massive decriminalization on a federal level anytime soon. So really what we're looking at is like, how do we support equity in clinical spaces? And by that, I mean, how do we move towards having more people going into the clinical side who are people of color, who are queer people, who are trans people, who can begin to ask questions about how we've always done these types of healing work in the clinical arena and bring more perspective to it and people getting involved more in their local scenes and how you can begin to talk to local politicians and change drug laws on that level. I imagine that the, uh, so the cannabis world has paved the way in how to do that as they're sort of tackling local uh, politicians and, and, you know, legalizing sort of a patch at a time to push that movement forward. I imagine like that's, uh, that's a good playbook to, to take a look at. 
you know, cannabis is the people who have been involved in sort of cannabis legalization and in the cannabis world. It's a very specific niche and not my expertise. But what I can tell you from my colleagues who have worked in that arena is that they, their view of how the direction that cannabis has gone is a very mixed bag, right? Because cannabis went very corporate, very fast. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of critique about how communities of color who have been most impacted by the drug war will really benefit from cannabis legalization because the bars to setting up any kind of dispensaries or legal stuff around cannabis is so incredibly high, you know, and I think we're still seeing like what is going to play out in terms of dealing with reparations for people who have been imprisoned and incarcerated for drug crimes involving cannabis. It's, it's very complicated. Looking at it, like we're going to have a multi-tiered approach and one of those tiers is going to be the clinical, right? And in the clinical realm, what we really want to look at is how to prevent psychedelic healing from going in the direction of $15,000 boutique treatment to actually being like accessible treatments that are competent for a wide range of identities. And then in the decriminalized world, I think what we really want to look at there is how to avoid this just becoming like a corporate overthrow of, of psychedelics. Like how do we actually create a world where we can cultivate on our own, where we can grow plants and fungi and learn how to responsibly use it in our own homes and with our own families for healing, you know, and then there is always going to be the recreational world of psychedelics as well. This is such great information. Thank you. And I also just want to probe a little bit more before we jump into the rapid fire questions. I know that you recently, very, very recently published an article um, specifically looking at treating sexual trauma with psychedelics. Um, could, you t- could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the article was just published two days ago in the journal Sexual and Relationship Therapy. The topic that I really wanted to tackle is what is the role of spirituality or sacredness in the healing process and doing psychedelic integration work um, with sexual trauma survivors. So really what I'm looking at is how and in what ways does a person heal from having sacred experience? And my interest in that is more about how we change our perspective after having these mystical experiences around um, how we think of ourselves. So, for example, people who are sexually traumatized in childhood often have low self-esteem, have um, a lot of difficulty in relationships, carry around a lot of negative self-referencing beliefs, like I'm unlovable, I'm broken. I mean, these are pretty ubiquitous from people who are traumatized as children. And in my work, what I'm really seeking to do is challenge those assumptions about self by exploring with the client after they've had a psychedelic experience of what it feels like to actually be in that state where you felt connected to the divine. How could you be broken or unlovable if you can also feel this sense of inner divinity, right? This expanded sense of self. I work in that way. And another facet of my work is really somatic. And so it's how to retrain the traumatized body to be able to come back online safely and feel eroticism, feel sexual sensation after abuse or sexual trauma. And 
in what way do can we incorporate spirituality into into that? And I've developed a whole series of techniques that I can that I work on with clients where of course they're doing this in a self-directed way at home, not in front of me in my office, but it involves erotic self-touch and mindful masturbation techniques that are pairing sexual stimulation with these feeling states of being connected to the divine. So, you know, you can certainly read my article and see more about what those specific techniques look like. But my objective is really folding in our spiritual selves into not only our healing, but bringing together some marriage of our spiritual identity and our sexual identity. And uh, it makes so much sense. I mean, the thinking about how powerful sex is and sexuality is and, and how that, that energy sits in our body and, and how that can just be paired up with, you know, a sacred energy to then heal kind of, even for me, the most sort of pragmatic and nerdy brain, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I continue to become confronted through this work with, with my religious upbringing and continue to to want to sit with and indulge and engage in the spiritual and the sexual in the same space and recognize that each time that comes up, like what happens inside of me where my, every, you know, years and years of training, like, no, Absolutely. that's not possible. You can't do that. Absolutely. And feeling drawn to saying, no, actually, that feels like the only way for that to feel safe and good and whole. Yeah. I mean, those are the clients with strong religious upbringings or really sex negative religious upbringings, or there's a a sex therapist named Peggy Kleinplatz and whose work I really admire. And she, I'm, you know, not quoting directly, but she had just this really brilliant thought about that, you know, we're raised to believe that self-respect is about withholding. And then as adults, we're trying to retrain ourselves to understand that self-respect, it has to do with asking for our desires to be met. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is an extremely complicated thing when um, we've had a religious background that are, you know, exploring our body is bad or sinful. Sex is mm-hmm. bad and sinful. Mm-hmm. Bringing spirituality into that as an adult is really a challenging and rewarding. I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate, I mean, personally, I appreciate it because I think I, I, I named in the beginning that I am curious and know that I need to continue to be on the journey of connecting with my body and, and, and moving past my mind to be able to heal trauma. And it is both helpful to see what is possible and accessible and frustrating to understand the blocks that get in the way. Mm-hmm. And so my, the community organizer spirit inside of me <laughs> is, is ready to be on the, on the supporting end of advocacy. And so I appreciate you giving us some, some channels to that. And we'll include the links to what you shared, not only the article, but the, the organizations that you work with in our bio so that this way folks can can get engaged dd so amazing yeah so informative i'm i'm actually kind of enthralled i've 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 just checked in with myself and then as i was listening to i just realized how much i've been listening and normally we're taking notes we're you know managing a bunch (laughs) of things in the in the back end what I've noticed is like, I'm just like enthralled by all the things that you're saying. And like, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to listening to this like again and again, as we have to do for editing. And there's just like such good information there and it's so clear and so accessible. It really legitimizes his work. It's hopeful um, for me. It just sounds so hopeful. Like here is another way of looking at trauma. Some of the darkest traumas, like sexual traumas, there's 
treatment that is not only like scientifically sound, but also comes with, you know, spirituality and connectedness and, um, and all those things that we don't forget about those things. That is a holistic, fully integrated approach that feels so hopeful. So thank you. Great. I'm so glad. And connected to the generations. I think that's the other thing that continues to sit with me is to think about, you know, my, my indigenous and Taino ancestors, like leveraging this and feeling connected to my ancestry and feeling connected to history. And so same, I I think I'm walking away with that same sense. I think I I feel a sense of, of joy, of hope, of frustration around lack of access and joy and hope for what is possible in the future. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the access thing, we didn't say this in the main bulk of the recording, but ketamine is what we do have a lot of protocols around and accessibility. Um, so there are some people who are doing fantastic work bringing, trying to bring low-cost ketamine treatments. Ketamine is becoming much more accessible via um, services where you can be evaluated online, and I'm not necessarily endorsing that, but they're trying to build an infrastructure as MDMA and psilocybin get rescheduled. That's what a lot of people are trying to do is use ketamine as the jumping off point to build the infrastructure to be more psychedelic oriented clinics. So right now there is a lot of ketamine work happening. Yes. No, I have had an experience with a clinic that specializes in this work and um, I've been surprised at how automated it was. Yeah. You know, whether that's good or bad, you know, that's a question mark. Uh, I was just surprised at how automated and kind of my experiences came with instructions and playlists and prompts that were all online. And, and sure, I had access to coaches, but a bulk of the work was done through like a, like a system, a very comprehensive system, which I found mm-hmm. surprised that I, I wouldn't say self-service, but it was, it was, it was interesting that it was, it just, once you found your way, it was very accessible and very easy to, to get through. Thank you, Didi, so much for your time. And um, I imagine we'll have you back on the show again and, and sort of delve more into this stuff going forward. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. What an amazing conversation. Just so much information, so clearly laid out. I loved it. And the, the, things that really, the two things that really stood out for me, one is a personal reflection. I am a nerd and we know this and sometimes I overdo it. And this topic has been one of those that I really, I really overdone the nerdiness. I've been so focused on the science of psychedelics and like how, how they're like what they're made of, how they react in the body, the the way that it activate our nervous system and, and all the things, all the science about dosage and, and how the research are being done and all those kind of things. Uh, for such a long time and and how they how they apply to my healing and all those things for such a long time what i hadn't connected with is the spiritual and the sacred side of the psychedelic experience for healing mm. that that especially the plant based the fungi based psychedelics the, the mushrooms and the peyotes and the ayahuasca and all those that they're ancient and they were around before we were around and they have their own mm-hmm. sacred spiritual energy that really helps guide the healing which you know i just i just hadn't really thought about that and or, it, or at least i should say it wasn't really presented to me in this way that just like clicked like i had a proper light bulb moment and i was like yeah like i don't really think about that yet i i know that i've experienced it so that was a like a big takeaway for me yeah also just a, a note to self to like turn down the nerd every now and then <laughs> <laughs> but th- uh, let me say first of all i think that makes sense because particularly in the united states that is often our focus right is in a very clinical kind of perspective and you know, what is it doing and what does it mean and what's the dosage and all those things so it makes sense that, that our brains would go there 
And I had a similar reaction. I think that I was drawn to the idea of what that means in a secret space. I think there are some debates and uh, around the idea that potentially our ancestors thousands of years ago, their access to psychedelics is is part of what helped create community, part of what it created and sparked imagination that helped create tools and help create societies. And so from that perspective, number one, realizing that that is a big part of our, our roots, but also just personally thinking about my indigenous heritage and thinking about the communities that my, my ancestors were in and and how this was a part of, of their life. Like, I don't know if I connected those dots until this conversation as well, which made me even more interested and excited <laughs> about this possibility and more annoyed that I can't access it in a way that feels that feels simple. Yes. No, that's 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 correct. That's true. Yes. And then I think that the next piece for, for me was I was really inspired by Didi's vision of this, you know, legal community based psychedelic rituals uh, and what that would do to the fiber of our society. You know, I thought that was a really interesting um, mm. exploration about what could be possible if, if this stuff was available and when I reflect on it further, I mean, community, ritual, spirituality, and something that makes you feel good and connected to, you know, your fellow humans, you can't mm -hmm. really go wrong with that, right? I can see why, you know, in Ecuador and Peru, that this has been a way of life for, and in Mexico, it's been a way of life for so long. And the, the things that you were saying about how these communities have higher well-being and more connectedness and mm -hmm. just feeling just generally feeling good and joyful i you know once you have community ritual spirituality something that gets you high in a, in a, in a good connected way mm -hmm. of course people are feeling good <laughs> you know like sign yeah. please sign me up so i thought that was you know that was just like that's that's huge and I, I i share that vision now that's like that's being put in front of me as an inspiration i'm like yeah let's make that happen yeah Particularly now, I've been thoughtful about that as it relates to our, you know, post-pandemic life, where prescriptions of Xanax and and you know, clonopin and Wellbutrin and Lexapro and like like they're they're out of stock on shelves, right? Because everybody is on something, and yet cannabis, mushrooms, other things that are literally grown from the ground are not accessible, but things that are made in labs and, and made to make pharmacies and insurance companies lots and lots of money. Of course, those are widely accessible. And that feels really frustrating. I think even as a parent who is navigating the the mental health journey of, of my daughter and thinking about ways in which I want to support her in that journey, I do wish, honestly, that there were some other more natural remedies, more natural tools available mm. as a parent to support her mm. in that journey, because certainly there's lots of advice about other kind of prescriptions that I'm getting. And so I really am interested in, in, in what you described of, of of a community where those things are possible, where yeah. where our ability to connect with each other and with nature sure. does not feel so regulated. Exactly. And how quick how quick we are to prescribe pharma like psychopharmacology Mm -hmm. And like that is that is that's like a, this one track, one note. It's mm -hmm. not even a treatment. It's like management, really. We know this. Like psychopharmacology exactly. is not treatment; it's management. And so, one note management mm -hmm. tool, where what what they're describing in the psychedelic, what they're what they're sort of 
painting the vision of is this like here is your here is your chemical support which is you know uh, nature's your nature's gift by the way that comes with a spiritual experience so mm -hmm. that you have another note another layer and you know it's offered to you in ritual right you're not popping a, mm -hmm. a, a white cap of a of an orange you know yes. bottle and like popping a pill but it's offered to you in community in a ritual that is so much more of a holistic grounding connecting experience that feels so much more healing just even in theory just even just in my mind than yes. you know a piece of paper with with you know some chemical written on it that I go and get and I pop every morning and and, yes. and you know cross my <laughs> fingers and hope that I feel better you know it's completely true yeah I so I'm on Wilbutrin and I take it in the morning when I take my vitamins so they're all like lined up in the counter my multivitamin my vitamin d my fish oil you know and my probiotics my Wilbutrin like you just and you drink your water and you keep it moving when I was doing microdosing that was a ritual experience. I would make some tea. I would create some space in the morning. I would think of an intention, like just the experience, as you noted, was just so different. And it didn't feel like maintenance. It felt like a checking in with myself. And I think this conversation helped me realize like I need more of that. I need to, to figure out more ways to incorporate that into my life. The other thing that, that this was, you know, this topic was interesting and I was drawn to because I, I am continuing to think about ways to, to heal my body and to connect with myself. And I think that the closest that I've been on uh, a real trip is, is my Netflix binging recent. Um, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, <laughs> Netflix has now the fantastic fungi and have a good trip adventures in psychedelics and the goop lab with Gwyneth Paltrow did a, a, an episode on psychedelics. And so, you know, we talked about it really psychedelics being something that was discussed only in relation to party kids and hippies, but now it also feels really mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so I continue to be annoyed because now I just keep watching on Netflix, binging thing upon thing. That's like, look how great, look how great, look how great. Mm -hmm. But then you can't sign up but for you study can't have you it. apply to Peru. Right. Mm -hmm. right, exactly. Right. You can't have it unless you're Gwyneth Paltrow um, and her team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. It's the same. And, and I love, I love that's one of the things that, did you really refer to you? I love how aware they were of the limitations, the bureaucracy that's around it and sort of frustrated yeah. by it as well and, and the legalities. So so get involved, figure out what you can do and, and do it. We're going to put the links in our, in our bio, I think, because I am now feeling that sense of, I need to advocate. We need to do something. We need to mm -hmm. connect. And so um, I think Dita gave us a few different references, but it sounds like within each of our local communities, there are some spaces and places that we can link folks to in order to do some advocacy. And so if you want to find out more ways to be involved, to be informed, number one, we'll put some links in our show notes, but two, you can go to Didi's website at ddgoldpaw.com. That's D-E-E-D-E-E-G-O-L-D-P-A-U-G-H.com. Didi's also written an article, many articles actually, including the one that they referenced on the episode, Finding the Divine Within, Exploring the Role of the Sacred in Psychedelic Integration Therapy for Sexual Trauma and Dysfunction, which could be found on the Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy. To tap into the community and resources and fun that is found here within Curious Fox, then you can visit our website at wearecuriousfoxes.com 
or visit us on Instagram at Facebook. We are Curious Foxes for photos and articles and conversations and sneak peeks. And to support the show and to indulge in your curiosity, join us on Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes, where you can find behind-the-scenes footage, mini episodes, over 50 videos from educator-led websites. Go on to Patreon. We Are Curious Foxes. And we're increasing our listenership. That is a focus of ours for this year, moving into next, and we need your help. So please share our podcast or this episode with a friend. Quickly rate the show, leave a comment, subscribe on Apple Podcast, or follow us on Spotify and Stitcher. And then let us know that you're listening by sharing a comment, a story, or a question by emailing us or sending us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who's a real trip to work with. Our intro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are so grateful for their work and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.